Thanks, Michael. Let's pray. So, God, Emmanuel, God with us, we pray that you would come and be dwell in our midst and, and show up now, that we would, this morning, we would do more than just um, talk about you, that we pray that you would be revealed to us, and so that we might see you and know you and love you as the God who you are, who you've always been, God with us. It's in Jesus that we pray, saying, amen. So um, it's been great to be able to preach with you, uh, to you these last couple weeks, and um, I don't know if you've been able to follow along either in service or at home online, but we've been, had the opportunity this season of Advent to explore themes that oftentimes come up around Christmas, passages that we oftentimes sing or read together in relationship to the Christmas season and the Advent season. And we've been doing that through the lens of Isaiah the prophet and his message delivered to God's people, Israel. And we've found that so many of those passages that we are are commonplace in during Christmas time find um, resonance or come from Isaiah's message. But we've seen that when we look at those passages and we experience them and appreciate them in their context, that it adds new depth to our understanding of what they mean. And to this morning is no different. This morning, we're going to begin with a passage that I'm sure is very familiar to you. It comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You're familiar with this, right? Emmanuel means God with us, right? What's interesting to though is to appreciate how and in what ways and what context God is with us. Have you ever looked at the larger passage of Isaiah chapter seven and eight? I wonder if it gives you a new appreciation for what that verse means. So let's do that. Let's look at uh, Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And this isn't the only place where Emmanuel, that name, shows up. It also shows up in Isaiah 8, verses 5 through 10. Let's read that now. The Lord spoke to me again because because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over resin and the son of Remelah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. 
and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For Emmanuel. Now, isn't that interesting? What does Emmanuel mean in that context? Crazy, right? What's going on here? What's this all about? Well, if you remember, two weeks ago, we talked about how when Isaiah proclaimed his message in that time and place, beginning in the mid part of the 8th century BC, and ultimately finding its fulfillment in the latter part of the 6th century BC, when the prophet first began to proclaim his message, Israel, the people of God, were a divided people between north and south. There was Israel in the north and Judah in the south, two different kings, two different governments, but they considered them one people, Israel, God's people, those who contend with God, all right? And then we realized, and we looked at how that when, I, um, when a, that um, God's people were under a co- constant state of threat from other empires. In fact, by the time of Isaiah's message, uh, Assyria, the great world power in, of that time, had overrun the north, and the only the only thing that was left was was Judah in the south. So Judah was oppressed on all sides by all kinds of threats, other empires and kingdoms wanting to gain access to the trade routes that run north and south, east and west, right through that region. And in fact, it wasn't just Judah that was under threat, it was also the entire region of Palestine, Sumeria, and even Syria in the north. And so what's happening now in this time when uh, Isaiah proclaims this message of Emmanuel, right, is that the... Um, the king in the south, in Judah, Ahaz, has been um, under pressure by two other kingdoms. Rezin in the north, in Damascus, what we call Syria, modern-day Syria, and Pekah, who was the king of Sumeria. And those two kings had united together, formed an alliance over and against, um, to, to fight over and against Assyria that was threatening them as well. And they were putting pressure on Israel in the south, Judah in the south, for they wanted them to, uh, Ahaz to join their allegiance, their alliance. And if Ahaz um, would go along with it, then they would be that much stronger. But they threatened him that if he refused, that they would overrun him anyways, take over the land, seed it into their own, split it amongst them, and all would be naught. He would, they would unite him to them in any ways. Now, Isaiah, God has sent Isaiah to Ahaz with a message to tell Ahaz, do not give in to Rezin and Pekah. Do not give in to Syria and Sumeria. Resist them in my name, and I will be your strength. But Ahaz couches, uh, refuses to do that. He does not trust Yahweh. He does not trust the God of Israel. And he couches his resistance in pious words, saying, I will not test you, Lord. I will not test you, but what, he, what we realize is that he reveals his own heart, that he doesn't trust God, who, that God will be with him. But instead, he trusts the strength and might of these two other kingdoms. And to this, God sends a sign. 
God sends a sign which is the birth of a child and that sign will be both a promise and a warning, both grace and judgment. For what God says is, in the time in which this child is born and brought into the world, with less than a year, I will deliver you, Judah, I will deliver you, Israel, from the threat of Pekah and Rezin. I will deliver you, I will save you from the pressure of these two kingdoms. And you will experience my goodness and the peace of the land, and you will know Emmanuel, God with us. By the time that child is named, you will have peace. And God uses, in fact, Assyria, the, the larger threat, to wipe out those two other nations and save Israel. But that's only one side of the promise. The second side of that coin is the warning. It is that in the it, only a few years later, by the time that child has come to a place where he knows good from evil, right? He will be eating curd and honey, meaning it's, the, it's kind of the traditional food of the nomad, of the wanderer. For God will, for that same um, power that delivered them, Assyria will be revealed as an evil power that will overtake them. That Assyria will flood the land like a river that overflows its dike and spreads across the whole region. And Judah will be a wanderer. God, um, that they will be wandering, there will be nomads, they'll be lost in that flood. Emmanuel. And God will be with them. Even as they are shattered and they are broken, as they strap on their armor, as they um, consult wise counsel and that comes to failure and not, Emmanuel. Now scholars debate, who is this Emmanuel? Is he a historic figure of the time and the context in which we're reading? Some speculate that he's the son of Isaiah himself. Others believe that it's probably representative, Emmanuel's representative of Israel, the people of God. Some even conclude that it must be the Messiah, the promised one who would come and deliver the people. All those are probably, to some extent and to some degree, true. And yet, if there is any consensus amongst the scholars, all agree about this that the historic figure, that there, there, there was no such thing as a historical figure who could fulfill all that was promised about Emmanuel, at least not in that time and that place. And that leads me to believe and to suppose that this Emmanuel has less to do with the particular times and place of Israel in its context and more to do with what it has to say about the disposition and character of the God of Israel, of the God of that people. And what does it say? It says that God is no solitary, lonely, isolated, self-sufficient, self-contained God, but in fact that God is God with us. God for us, that God moves towards, relentlessly towards his people in time of privilege and in time of suffering, Emmanuel, in time of blessing or in time of curse, Emmanuel, in time of sickness or in time of health, Emmanuel, in time of desolation or in time of peace and prosperity, Emmanuel, again and again the word comes through, Emmanuel, God with us. 
that this God does not choose to be a God apart from his people, but this God chooses to act and be disposed in a way that he is for his people, present in the midst of all that they experience, all that they encounter. He says, Emmanuel. And not only that then, that this God has pronounced a verdict. That in Emmanuel, he speaks a word. And that word that he proclaims on his people, and in fact, on the whole world, is the verdict is yes. Yes. And that's why all who have encountered, uh, the, the message of all who have encountered Emmanuel have always understood their message to be that which is good news, gospel, euangelion. It's good news because it speaks of the good God who moves relentlessly towards his people, even and in spite of, in the midst of, all the movement of history, maybe precisely in that movement of history, God moves towards us, and that is good. For how could it not be? Because Emmanuel tells us of the human God, of a God who makes himself human. If he were not such a God, then he would be bad news, right? If God remained apart, far from, removed, isolated, strange, uh, wholly other, then that news would be bad news for us because that God could only proclaim a word that is a judging, scary, dis- uh, deadly word to all human sin and striving. It, that kind of God would be a God to be feared, to be afraid of, to, to flee from, to be avoided at all costs if you could, because who could live up to this, the demands of such an inhuman or superhuman God? Who could ever fulfill all that that God would ask of them? And yet Emmanuel speaks not of that inhuman God, but of a human God, of a God who comes towards us, is not far from us, but near from us. A God who is not impersonal, but personal. A God who is not, who, who um, when he says a word of no, to his people, like any good parent, that word of no is couched in the larger word, the primal word, the word from all eternity of yes, the verdict which is yes, and God speaks that word yes. In other words, he wills and he, uh, a a beneficial, a healing, a, a wholesome, uplifting work born in us. Emmanuel. And that word is good news, it's salvation. Salvation for all his creation. Now, let me just make an aside here. Sometimes people will say, okay, if this is what God's all about, the saving of the whole world, salvation come to us, then why does, it, why does God go through all the rigmarole, right? Why all the ups and the downs? Why the building up and the shattering of us? Right? Why doesn't he just save us from the outset if this is the God that we proclaim? 
And to that, I would say, we have a distorted view of what salvation really is and what it really means. For oftentimes, when we talk about salvation, what we mean is strictly and only the preservation of being, right? God, that God would come and preserve our life, right? But in fact, the biblical understanding of salvation is not strictly or only the preservation of being, it is also the fulfillment of being. Meaning that God doesn't just throw us a life preserver, right? He imparts life to us, his perfect and pure and holy life, the life that belongs and is proper only to the creator of the universe and then thus by definition does not belong to his creatures. So that salvation, that life that God imparts can only come from the outside and within our own lives, our whole lives are seeking and searching the fulfillment of that promise. Or as Peter um, says, and um, I actually agree with, I think he's right. If the whole, we are currently right now in the midst of being created, that God is producing with us, creating in us the image of himself, his own life in us. And so the gift of salvation that God gives on Christmas is the most precious of gifts because it's his own life. Eternal life, perfect life, the life of the God, Emmanuel. So what does it look like when the human God, not the inhuman or even the superhuman God, gives his life to us? What does that look like for us? Over the last two weeks, we've used sermon, or um, we've used um, a couple different movies, scenes from movies, to illustrate the points, the themes that run throughout Isaiah. And we do this because um, in today's world, movies are the way in which the modern world tells its stories. And the point there is to illustrate or highlight how all our stories that we tell ourselves have resonance with or reflect a deeper story that runs throughout all human history. And in that way then, these movie clips and, and, and movies themselves function not unlike a parable, a parable that, a story that we're all familiar with but hint at a deeper meaning. And the same is true this morning. I want to share with you a, a scene from uh, one of my favorite movies, The Matrix. Are you familiar with that? You remember how that movie exploded on the scene of pop culture? I remember. It blew my mind, right? For it told the story of a people who were lost in darkness, that they had been, become slaves to a lie and that in the midst of their slavery, one comes into the world, their world, invades their, their world with something akin to superhuman powers, right? His name is Neo, Mr. Anderson, right? The son of man. And that Neo is um, awakened to these powers that allow him to fight for the cause of his people. He takes the, their cause and makes it his own and he fights for them in ways that they couldn't fight for themselves in almost a superman kind of quality. And yet as the story progresses from one film to the next to the next, we see that the threats that exist for those people, both out external, 
The machines are at the door. And internal, the virus that is Agent Smith is taking over everything. Those threats seem relentless and seem about ready to overcome the people. And the breakthrough happens when Neo realizes that his destiny is not to fight for them in a superhuman way, but to fight for them in a wholly human way, to give his life for them in a way that would set everyone free and make peace by his blood. Watch this. Is it over? look like why what does it look like when a god gives his life in this way salvation come as a human god not a god who is apart from or uh, uh, without humanity but a god with humanity it looks like light shining in the darkness it looks like a one who is willing to give his life for a friend. It looks like the walls of hostility being torn down. It looks like a lost coin or a lost sheep or a lost son found again. It looks like the reconciliation of the world with God. It looks like a slaughtered lamb seated on a throne. It is good news to us because it speaks a word that is Emmanuel, God with us. God for us. But that word, Emmanuel, is not just good news because it speaks of the good God. It's good news also because it is, in fact, news. It's newsworthy. And that's different than all other forms of religions or ideologies or worldviews. For what it is not is advice. 
What it is not is law or rules or recipes or systems or propositions, abstract propositions or universal principles or the, all the things that we tell ourselves that we need to do in order to get, put our lives back to rights, to climb up to heaven, so to speak, right? No, the gospel is good news because it is news, for it announces, it proclaims an event, a happening. Something has happened in human history that has changed your condition, my condition, the situation of the world forever, for good. God in Christ has done, what God has done in Jesus, Emmanuel, right? God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so when we um, are witness to that news, that event, that happening, how do we respond to that? When we see salvation come, born in our midst, what does it look like, our response look like? seen, have witnessed the coming of salvation, peace by the blood of, the, of Emmanuel, right? What do you do when you've been made witness of that event? Well, you tell people about it. Good news. God has, is with us. God is not just with us. God is for us. This is the calling of God's people. And this is the calling that Israel uh, had to wrestle with when Isaiah proclaimed his message. Why had the, the, that they had not only become the receivers of this message, Emmanuel, but they have be, had also become the bearers of this message. That this message was delivered not just to them, but also to the nations, to the world. And they were being sent by God, not unlike how God sent Isaiah. Remember, God said, whom shall I send? And Isaiah responds to the call saying, send me. 
Well, Israel was being called, God's people were being called to proclaim, to announce that good news to the whole world. That's why at the end of Isaiah, in chapter 66, it says this. Verses 18 through 23. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set aside among them a sign. Did you see that? And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tabul and to Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh come to worship before me. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Did you hear that? All flesh shall come to worship before me. So when we ask the question, why does God do it this way, right? Why does he allow, in fact, will at times that we should be shattered and broken? It's because God is producing within us a character that is his own, a life, his life, the eternal life that is our destiny, our purpose. And God is making us, his people, witnesses to his coming into the world, Emmanuel, God with us, so that we can then proclaim that news, that good news to all the nations that they may see his glory and be drawn to him, that they may know what they do not yet know, that God has pronounced a verdict upon them and on the whole world, and that verdict is yes. And when we proclaim that news, that good news, that word, Emmanuel, we then are also proclaiming it to ourselves. For though we know this and we have heard it, We are yet to believe it, or we are still learning it. We are still coming to believe it. And that's why at the heart of our life together, we celebrate this table. Because the name Emmanuel finds its fulfillment in the name Jesus. Matthew tells us so when he says in chapter one, verses 20 through 25, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and, his, and he called his name Jesus. 
Jesus. God's grace poured out in our life. God's salvation born in our midst. And that grace, the Greek word is charis, that grace, that charis, produces within us a response of Eucharist, thanksgiving, gratitude. And did you know that this table, by some traditions in Christianity, is called the Eucharist? And so when we gather around this table, when we participate in this event, we are actually gathering around the life of Christ. We are participating in his life. We are proclaiming it, his word, yes, to the whole world and in turn to ourselves. We are coming to believe the impossible possibility of salvation. And did you notice when that word is proclaimed to the people, Zion, lost in their sin, what was their response? It wasn't just Thanksgiving. What was it? They celebrated. They began to jump for joy. They hugged one another. And they said, yes, back to that primal yes of God. And so this morning, I invite you to come to this table where Jesus took a piece of bread and having given thanks, looking up into heaven, giving thanks, he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat all of it. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. And every time we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming, we are announcing good news. Good news to the whole world. For Emmanuel, God is with us. And not only with us, God is for us. So I invite you to come to this table, participate in Christ's life, and then let's let the party begin. Okay? This is Advent, right? Advent in which we wait expectantly for the coming of salvation into the world. Jesus, God who saves, God with us, Emmanuel. Um, a friend of mine sent me a, a note uh, reminding me of something Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said about Advent, and I couldn't get it into the sermon, so I thought I'd share it now in the benediction. Bonhoeffer says this, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Isn't that true? And wouldn't that be weird if God who comes into the world, God who chooses not to be God without humanity, but to be God with humanity, and opens the door to that prison cell, wouldn't that be weird if the people, Zion, sitting in the cave, waiting expectantly for that to happen, then when that happened, would go on just living as if they were still in prison? Wouldn't that be just a weird way to respond? No, right? They would celebrate. 
and then they would go tell somebody. So in this Advent season, as we wait to celebrate, and I hope you come on Tuesday to celebrate with us, wait expectantly for the coming of God into the world, Jesus, Emmanuel, good news to you. God is salvation in Jesus' name. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Friends, go in peace today and serve the Lord. Amen?